NASA. The word evokes space exploration, rockets, and missions to faraway planets. But one of the agency's most intriguing ventures is what it learns by turning its view back at Earth, a perspective that, as it turns out, can tell us a lot about our changing planet. Sadly, the picture that our work is painting is one that's very compelling and, and points to uh, a very complicated water future where we're, uh, the availability of water will become more contentious and groundwater in many parts of the world is disappearing. That's Jay Femoglietti, senior water scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. His research team is using satellite to track how fresh water availability is changing around the world. One of those satellites is called GRACE. GRACE stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment, and it is uh, actually a mission from the gravity community, a community that we call uh, the geodetic community that studies the shape of the Earth and some of its more arcane properties like gravity. Uh, but it turns out when you study the small changes in Earth's gravity field, that gives us uh, a whole set of new information about how water is moving around on the Earth that we never had before. So tell me how GRACE works. Apparently, it's a pair of satellites. Right. It's a pair of satellites. Neither of them are, are very big. They're about the size of each about the size of a squashed minivan. Um, they orbit at about 400 kilometers and they follow each other around uh, in a straight line. They're separated by about 200 kilometers and they function like a scale in the sky, meaning that when they fly over a region that um, has more water on the ground, say there's been a flood. That region it has gained water weight and it exerts just a slightly greater gravitational pull, tug on those satellites and pulls them down just a little bit closer to the Earth, right? And w conversely, when they fly over a place that's lost water, say like because of groundwater depletion uh, from a big aquifer, that region has lost water weight. And so that region exerts a slightly less of a tug on the satellites and they float just a little bit higher in their orbit. So really what we're doing is keeping track of the position of the satellites vertically and the distance between them. If we keep track of those positions, we can literally make maps of the regions around the world that are gaining or losing water every month. So it can measure groundwater, surface water, can it measure water in the soil or snow? GRACE gives us an integrated measurement of all of the water in a large region. And by integrated, I mean it can't distinguish between the snow and the surface water and the soil moisture and the groundwater. It's kind of like, you know, if you get on a scale and you find out that you've gained five pounds, you don't know that if you've gained it in your head or, you know, your arms or whatever. You just have one number and you need other data to figure out where that uh, weight gain or loss has come from. So GRACE was launched in 2002. What have you learned so far? It's 2016. Well, with respect to water, We've had a tremendous number of surprises, and some of the major ones are that we're able to see what we call the intensification of the water cycle, which really means that there's more water moving through the water cycle. There's more precipitation, there's more evaporation, there's more runoff, so there's more water that's circulating around. Um, we can see that, as predicted by the climate change models, that the mid-latitude regions of the world are actually getting drier, and the high and the low latitude regions are getting wetter. So again, that's been predicted 
to happen by the end of the century from climate models, but we're seeing it now with the GRACE data. And the third, I think, major contribution is that we uh, have been able to expose that groundwater depletion is happening in most of the world's major aquifers. It's a, a truly global phenomenon, and so it's happening at rates that we just did not know before, and they're kind of scary. I want to get back to climate change in a minute, but first, are there other JPL programs around water beside GRACE? We do a lot with, with water at, at uh, JPL. So we have some key satellite missions uh, that have been or, or will be launched. So there's the Global Precipitation Mission, which measures uh, precipitation around the world. There's the SMAP mission, which stands for Soil Moisture Active Passive. That maps the moisture in the upper few centimeters, the upper five centimeters of soil around the world. There's an upcoming upcoming mission called SWAT, which, so we have great acronyms. There's an upcoming mission called SWAT, which stands for uh, Surface Water and Ocean Topography, and that is going to launch in 2020. And SWAT is going to give us a picture for the first time of how water spreads over the global land surfaces, meaning how river heights vary in time, how river widths vary in time, and same thing for lakes and uh, lakes and reservoirs. So we have uh, a whole uh, slate of new information that will be coming our way in the next few years. So what is it that NASA JPL hopes will happen with the data you collect? Well, it's certainly uh, our hope here at JPL and NASA-wide also to have our data examined by environmental decision makers, by water resource managers. We can never tell them what to do and we don't make suggestions on policy, but we sure as heck do our best to get that information on their radar. It sounds like your work did impact policy though. Um, for example, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act here in California. So um, yeah, I mean, the work that we do, hopefully it does impact, it does impact policy because many of us you know, we're so tied to the work that we do, we see that sea level is happening. Well, of course, then we'd like to see some changes about policy related to greenhouse gases that are just gonna melt more ice and lead to further amounts of uh, sea level rise. So some of our work uh, on groundwater depletion in California certainly caught the attention statewide. And, you know, is likely one of the reasons why the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act not was passed, we voted for that. But I think it was just another piece of information that the state water resources control board here in California used to justify the need. Let's talk more about California, since to me it's like a laboratory about water. What's the status? Um, it's a it's a varied it's a varied status. So you know that we have been uh, embroiled in this in this drought uh, going back to nominally began in in 2011. Uh, we had great hopes uh, this past winter for a big El Nino, which didn't really materialize. So things are continuing along their trajectory of not much snow in the mountains, not a tremendous amount of water in the reservoirs, uh, long term disappearance of of groundwater. So. The story in California uh, really hasn't changed for a long time. It's just that we're able now to see it better because of some of the satellite information we have. And that is that we face chronic water scarcity. And as long as we have a huge agricultural sector, we'll always be running short of water. So it's gonna, going to become a societal and a statewide decision about, and a national decision about where we grow our food. Is it always gonna be in California? If so, we're going to run out of water. So we're gonna to have to bring more water over here somehow or become super efficient uh, or both. These are huge decisions about California's water future. How do you feel like your work has helped shape perception? Well, um, 
that that's a good that's a good question. I need to think about that just just a little bit. You know, I think that uh, the sort of public writing I do tries to take that extra step. The things that I'm writing are based on the science and the observations that that we make. So, for example, my comment about chronic water scarcity that comes de- that comes directly from analyzing our data. This is not it's not an opinion. You can see it in the data. But getting people to understand that is very, very challenging. And even getting some of our water managers to understand it is quite, is quite challenging. So, you know, we're at a challenging time because in, in water management in California and the West because we have these new tools. And the new tools are showing us some things that we don't want to hear. And anytime you tell somebody something they don't want to hear, you know, there are, there are a number of different responses to that. Everything from, la, 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 right, I don't want to hear it, exactly, or the hell with you, get me my water, or, oh my gosh, I need to be super efficient so that we have water for our grandchildren. Or some might say, if I can pay for it, why can't I use more? I, I think there's a perception that when we say we're in a drought, that it sounds temporary and it means things will go back to a time with abundant water. But my understanding is that the West was settled in an unusually wet period and we've built our towns and industry around an abundant water supply that may not be there. So how do you help people who think the water's coming back when your data show that that's not true. That's right, and it's not just our data. I mean, the data that we look at are satellite data that only go back to the early 2000s, but you can look at the paleoclimate data and see there's been very, very long periods of drought, and California is basically a, uh, a very dry place, especially the southern half of the state. So we have built up this huge infrastructure around uh, the availability of water, and, and now it's disappearing. So I think it points to some really uh, interesting questions and an interesting future for, for for our state as the as the water supply continues to dwindle and the population continues to grow. I think you've described California as a dry place with periodic wetness. Right, exactly. No, that's that's exactly right. It is a it is a dry place that's been punctuated by these wet periods. And you know, unfortunately for for us as a you know uh, humanity in the western part of the country, we settled uh, in a relatively wet period. Uh, we built all these all these uh, dams and and filled up our reservoirs. And you know, many of those will never be able to be refilled, you know, returned like Lake Mead, returned to its former glory. It's probably not going to happen. Speaking of Lake Mead, I want to talk to you about the Colorado River. I think you did a piece a few years ago about the Colorado River Basin. The Colorado River Basin, of course, is the, you know, is the water lifeline for all of the of the western United States. And we've been doing these studies of the disappearance of groundwater around the world. And a few years ago, we decided, hey, we live out west. We should really f- take a look at the Colorado River Basin. And in particular, because we know that a lot of groundwater gets used, and we know that a lot of it goes unreported. And we also know that our focus on water management has been on surface water, and the public's attention has been on surface water. So we look at Lake Mead, and we see the decline of the water levels and the bathtub ring growing and growing. And that's an important symbol for the drought. But we asked the question, hmm, I wonder how much groundwater is being used? Is it more? Is it less uh, than, what, than the declines that we're seeing in Lake Mead? And so we did a study on this a few years ago. And, you know, lo and behold, it showed that groundwater is disappearing at a rate of six or seven to one compared to the water and the rates of disappearance of water in Lake Mead. And so that's a huge eye opener, I think, that there's a lot of groundwater use that's happening across the West. A lot of it goes unreported. A lot of it is not really included 
in basin protocols in the agreements about water use. And and so the point of this paper, or one of the points of the paper, was that the disappearance of groundwater, uh, most of this groundwater is not coming back. It's non-renewable. So that it's like taking money out of a big retirement account. You're not going to get it back. And so you're really threatening the security of the whole region by not managing and not dealing with this disappearance of groundwater. From what I understand, you're not yet able to assess how much water is underground or how much is seeping from reservoirs, for example? Well, so um, the thing about a lot of the hydrology and putting together uh, a holistic picture is that we don't have a lot of measurements. And so now with measurements of reservoir levels, say from this upcoming SWAT mission, or measurements of soil moisture from the SMAP mission that was launched in, uh, in the winter of 2015, we now have numbers that we can put together to quantitatively understand how much water is there and, and how it's changing over time. Uh, now there are some things that we still don't know, and so we should be clear about that. And so one of the things that, that we have tried to communicate is that, especially when it comes to groundwater, with GRACE, the GRACE mission, we can understand how the groundwater storage is changing. But we don't actually know how much water is in the ground. And there's no way around that. That has to be explored with deep wells. There may be some things that we can do with isotopes and, and age dating uh, or both. But you know, the fact remains that we've never really done that exploration of Earth's water environment the way we have its energy environment, meaning like oil reservoirs, for example. And speaking of deep reservoirs, yeah. I read recently about the Stanford work about the, is fossil water an appropriate thing to call that? Right. So the point, so the, the Stanford study uh, was good, was good and bad. And the good part of it is that it brought attention to the fact that we don't know how much water we have and that in some of these lower quality aquifers, the water in some of these deeper aquifers is of lower quality, uh, we may need that water someday. And so therefore we shouldn't contaminate it with oil wastewater now. Uh, so that's a good point. And that's a, that's a very, you know, we, if we start thinking out several decades, that water will probably be important to sustainability in California. Um, the downside of the study was the claims that we have you know, tripled the amount of available groundwater. They, you know, no pun intended, didn't really hold any water because the definition of what is fresh water was quite um, generous and actually included saline and brackish and highly brackish water. And they uh, looked at depths of uh, in the subsurface that... You know, we don't even have the technology really to drill or it's too expensive or too expensive to pump the water out. So they're looking down, you know, something like 3,000 meters. So that part of the study, really, there was no, we haven't found, we have no more water in the Central Valley today than, you know, we did before that study came out. Well, my understanding is, okay, so they found that potentially there's some volume of water like at 3,000 meters, but... There's, from what I understand, there's a few downsides. A, it's probably incredibly saline, so you're looking at desalination, which is expensive. Yeah, so, it, I mean, we know that that water is there. So those authors didn't tell us anything that we didn't know. They, you know, they're from a different field. They're my colleagues. They're not hydrologists or hydrogeologists. Um, they discovered things that the community already knows that there is brackish water and saline water at depth in any big sedimentary basin. This, this, this is no surprise. This is no surprise at all, okay? Uh, so the water is largely unrecoverable today. 
and maybe 100 years from now, techno or 50 years from now, you know, the technology may advance to the point where we can drill deeper wells more cheaply, uh, the energy costs of pumping drop, or the price of water becomes so astronomical that now this, you know, now this makes sense to do. But there's no surprise on the water. There's no new information about water availability in the Central Valley from that study. Okay, so I didn't realize they already knew it was there. We knew. Okay. Oh, of course we know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, well, the, the salinity is one issue. Right. Another issue is that potentially it could get contaminated by oil and gas activity. Well, so that's it. That is important, right? And so they, in the study, they looked at some data on uh, deeper aquifers that, you know, many of these aquifers are being used for disposal of oil wastewater. So someday we may need that. We may need that water. So look, it's a, it's a problem. And, and um, certainly the oil industry has enough money to treat the water before it is injected back into an aquifer. You know, there, in, into aquifers. There's a paradigm out there that, sure, you can use this water in industry, but when you return it to the environment, it has to be at the same or better quality than when you pulled it out. I think our listeners would be shocked to know that they're even allowed to do that. Well, it's crazy, but but they are, and it's time for the uh, for our thinking on how to dispose of or treat this water, return it back to the environment. Uh, it's time for us to update that that thinking, right? Especially now that we realize every drop is valuable, especially in places like California. Right? Isn't there also a risk that the ground will just sink? Right. Right. Well, not everywhere. So subsidence or the sinking of the of the ground when groundwater is withdrawn, it's kind of like letting air out of a bicycle tire. Uh, in some places. Right. So if you let air out of a bicycle tire, the tire the tire deflates. In some places, when you pull water out of the ground, the ground deflates. But it's very um, localized to places that have clay minerals in their aquifers. And the reason is that clay minerals are flat. And when you remove the water, when you pull the water out of, a, out of an aquifer that has a lot of clay in it, the clay minerals actually stack up like plates in a uh, like plates in a in a sink, and the ground subsides because it takes up less space. You know, so you stack up those those dishes, those uh, stacks of, of clay minerals. So it doesn't happen all over the world, but it happens a fair amount in California. Um, certainly happening in all over no, not all over the Central Valley, but. What do you need for subsidence? You need to have a high percentage of clay minerals and a high uh, rate of pumping. And so where we're seeing most of the subsidence is in the San Joaquin part of the valley. And in fact, the eastern half of the, val- of the San Joaquin part of the valley is really at risk over the next century because there's so much clay in the section of the aquifer that's there. So we have to be really, really careful about uh, the pumping because of the subsidence. Of course, what I didn't mention is when there's infrastructure on top of the ground and the ground is sinking, then that infrastructure is damaged. And that could be a building, it could be a road, it could be a bridge, it could be our, our canals, right, which are directly impacted by subsidence. It could be a high-speed train line, which is right now mapped to go right through some of the areas with the most subsidence. So what's the takeaway for people living in California? The drought may end, but we still are not going to have enough water to do all the things that we want to do. So the chronic water scarcity problem that we face here, it's chronic. It's persistent. It's not, it's not going away. And we have to adapt because it is not going to change. I think some people would look at the ocean as a solution. What are your thoughts on desal? 
many people do look at desalination as the as the solution and it is uh, a limited it's a partial solution in some places it's very very expensive it's very energy intensive meaning that you know the the needs a lot of energy and so uh, there's a lot of greenhouse gas emissions associated with it and so the net benefit when you look at the climate change versus the additional water it could be uh it could be a wash um, the process leaves behind these very, very toxic brines that have to be disposed of. Throwing them back in the ocean isn't necessarily the right way to go. It's not the right way to go. And that's sort of, we've been diluting them and throwing them back in the ocean. But we will find over time, and we do see in other parts of the world that do a lot of desal, that, that it's killing the, killing the marine life. So some of that is tractable, I think meaning we can probably find something to do with the brines and we can probably do some work on, say, the membranes or something on the energy side. It may be a while before it becomes a viable large-scale solution. All that said, it's probably only going to be a good solution for municipal areas, for cities. Agriculture uses so much water that things like sewage recycling and desalination are not going to make a substantial contribution. What answer is there for agriculture then? I think the only answer is the efficiency. Efficiencies, correct crop choices, right? And it depends on how expensive it is to move water around. So will the Central Valley be operating at the scale that it is today 50 years from now? Uh, it depends completely on how much water is needed to grow which crops, and we'll have to wait and see what happens. Okay, so we're talking about aquifer depletion and groundwater depletion, but not just California, right? Your report showed that this is happening worldwide. It, it really is, and uh, we're not, so this is something that we don't lead in in the United States, and so actually the greatest rates of groundwater depletion are in India, uh, in China. In fact, there was just a report about subsidence around Beijing and the North China Plain. Um, the Middle East, uh, southern, uh, around Argentina, a big aquifer there is called the Huarni Aquifer. Um, a as Africa becomes more populated and more developed, we will see more um, depletion of those aquifers as well. And this goes back to the water cycle because these mid-latitudes are drying out and getting less rain to replenish the groundwater, but people are doing more pumping. It's like a vicious cycle, right? Yeah, it, it really is. There's a there's what we call a positive feedback there in that uh, it's already dry and it's getting drier and we're using more groundwater and therefore there's less water available. So therefore we pump more groundwater. Yeah, and you're right. And then because of climate change, these arid regions, we use groundwater in these regions because they're arid. They were arid to begin with because of Earth's atmospheric circulation and because of climate change. These places are getting are getting drier. So, yeah, it is. A, it's a vicious cycle. So where's the water going if it's not in the mid latitudes? When water leaves those mid latitude areas, there's a, uh, it goes somewhere else. So, you know, the amount of water that we have on the planet hasn't changed, but it's moving from one place to another. So it is possible within a region to actually run out of water. But that water is moving somewhere else. And so globally, uh, a lot of the water from the mid-latitudes ends up at higher latitudes or lower latitudes. So Arctic and the tropics, so the high latitudes and the low latitudes getting wetter. Um, that's another area where it's difficult to get the message out because now you're talking about a global phenomenon. But water is managed regionally and, you know, nationally. So, you know, to whom are you speaking when you write an opinion piece on global uh, global groundwater? And how do you how do you get nations to to collaborate? Right. It's a global issue. 
Is that what you mean when you call for a one water approach? When we talk about one water, it's really this the idea that surface water and groundwater are not separate things. I mean, you know, it's unrealistic to think that if you're managing surface water and not managing the groundwater, that you're actually having an impact on overall water availability. You're not. And that's what that Colorado River Basin paper showed, that, you know, you can pay a lot of attention to managing the surface water, but if you're not paying attention to the groundwater, then, you know, what's that expression near the the, the rooster in the hen house or the foxes in the hen house or whatever, you know, that water is disappearing, right? Because people will take it because it's unregulated. What are the solutions then, in your opinion? Well, we have to, we have to get engaged and uh, we can't stick our heads in the sand as much as we would like to do that and as easy as that's becoming now with uh, big swaths of the land areas getting drier. So I think the first thing we need to do is raise awareness it's really important to understand that there are a couple of things that are conspiring against having a an easy water future. And they are climate change, and they are population growth, and they are the need to grow food. So we can do all of that, or at least the food part, more efficiently. Anything that we do to slow the rate of climate change is going to help the water cycle. On a local basis, we can, we can impact our lives locally for sure, and we can impact our water supply locally. Many people ask the following question, why should I do anything since agriculture uses all the water, uses like 80% of the water withdrawing its use for agriculture, why should I do anything? The reason is because many of our municipal water supplies are separate. So we need to act locally. One of the biggest things that we can do as homeowners is kill the grass. Just get rid of the lawn, especially in the western United States. That's basically where all the water use is. You can make that change and switch over to drought tolerant or native landscaping. That's huge. As you said, people get really frustrated about how much water agriculture uses, but the biggest crop in America, right, is our cherished front lawns. Yeah, no, grass is far and away the biggest crop. And we should also remember that we all love to eat. So, you know, this is not an us versus them or, you know, darn that agriculture, they use so much water. No, we, you know, we could do the accounting. We know that it takes a lot of water to grow food. We also know that we want to eat today and tomorrow and the next day and a decade from now and a century from now. So it's in all of our best interest to sustain agriculture for uh, as long as we can. And part of that's going to be sustain- sustaining the water supply. The other thing that we can do on a larger scale when we start to think about the state in the region and the country is to start pressuring our elected officials to think about water, right? Ask them what their water platform is. I mean, that's really important, right? Would you want to elect a new senator here in California without really understanding what uh, what that person's water platform is? Do they even have a water platform, right? right? So we need to take, we, the people, need to take some ownership of this problem and let our uh, elected officials know that it is important to us. So are you optimistic? Sometimes depends on the time of day and you know what I've had for what I've had for lunch uh, well I'm optimistic that we have a tremendous amount of technology the work that we do here at JPL I think is is has been uh, a game changer it, it really has uh, so I'm really optimistic about that I'm optimistic about the uh, young people that are that are studying environmental science and are doing hydrogeology and climate change and and the young people that I work with here so that gives me a, a, a lot of a lot of hope um, we're not going to change climate change I mean, climate change is happening 
So we have no choice but to manage our way through it. And I'm very hopeful and quite optimistic that uh, we can do a good job doing that. just might take a while. Roger that. I've been speaking with Jay Famiglietti, Senior Water Scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. For H2O Radio, I'm Franny Halperin.